0: This is Christopher Bandini uh, from New Books and Psychoanalysis, and I'm here today with Naoko Wake, Associate Professor of History at Michigan State University. Her field is the history of medicine, gender, sexuality in the United States, and the Pacific Rim, and she is the author of Private Practices, Harry Stack Sullivan, The Science of Homosexuality, and American Liberalism. That's published by Rutgers in 2011, and the co-author with Shinpei Takeda, of Hiroshima Nagasaki, Beyond the Ocean by Yorori Books, 2014. She is currently working on her second monograph, Bombing Americans, Gender, and Trans-Pacific Remembering After World War II, which explores the history of Japanese-American and Korean-American survivors of the atomic bomb with a focus on the cross-national engendered memory, identity, and activism. Uh, we're here today to talk about her first book, Private Practices, Uh, Harry Stack Sullivan, The Science of Homosexuality and American Liberalism. So uh, welcome, Dr. Wake.
1: Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here.
0: Great. So uh, let's start off, which is customary when we do these interviews at New Books and Psychoanalysis, is to ask you, what led you to uh, write this book?
1: Well, it has a long history. Uh, So it started out when I went to college in Kyoto and picked up a book that was actually a translated version of Harry Stack Sullivan's. Uh, Schizophrenia as a Human Process, and somehow the title very much spoke to me. Uh, Not that I was a psychology or psychiatry major at that point, but I think I was interested in um, people's mind and the way it works, and I'm kind of looking for a theory that makes sense to me, that explains it. And uh, I think it's a very, um, you know, useful interest on my part. I think, you know, college-age students are often interested in those things, interested in people and their minds and so forth. And um, somehow, Harry Stack sullivans interpersonal theory of mental illness very much made sense to me. And I think what was uh, standard for me at that point was how, uh, uh, well, in quote-unquote, despite the fact that, he was American, he was very much interested in understanding mental illness from an interpersonal perspective. My um, very limited understanding of American history and American culture, people at the time, was that uh, it was very much based on individualism. So I got really curious about how come this person is trying to understand American people by looking at their interpersonal relationship. So that's how it started out, and I think it was back in 19... 95, 6, around that time. So I wrote a, uh, a thesis uh, at the time of my graduation and I studied uh, further about Aristaxiron in my uh, master's program at Kyoto. And then, then I decided that, um, you know, I was uh, looking into his clinical records. That's one of the uh, things that I think I, I really spent a lot of time thinking about in my process of thinking and writing a book. Um, so um, to you know have an access to clinical records of Saigon, you have to go to his mental hospital. A mental hospital he used to work work at as a psychiatrist. So that's the reason why I came here with a determination to uh, finish up this project. So that's how um, I I guess it's a, a long version of how I got interested in the book.
0: How many years did it take to write the book?
1: So if you. Just focus on the writing itself, I guess uh, it was after I um, became uh, ABD, all that dissertation. So that happened in um, 2002, and uh, dissertation was uh, completed in uh, three years, and then it took me several years after that, um, after my degree in 2005, to complete the book in 2011. So in, in total, it's, it's quite a bit of time, I guess, from 2002 to 2011, it's nine years. But as I said earlier, my relationship to the, the project really started much earlier. So it's been, it's been a long time. Uh, well, I'm glad that the book is published now, but it was definitely a, a, one of the a longest projects I ever engaged myself with.
0: It really comes across in the book how extensive uh, the work was. So you traveled to uh, Chestnut Lodge, uh, and then you met with um, with several people who knew Harry Stack Sullivan or who had been supervised by him. Is that correct?
1: Uh, I never actually went to Chestnut Lodge Hospital. I actually did most of my work at Shepherd and Enoch Pratt Hospital. Oh, okay. And, uh, <laughs> yes. Right. So that's where I met most of the people I talked to. Um, uh, they, uh, when I say they, I I, I mention I mean uh, psychiatrists who um, many of them are now retired, but uh, psychiatrists uh, who uh, were, you know, seeing patients at the hospital during the time I was doing the research for my dissertation. So um, they really helped me to have a better sense of what's there uh, as available resources for historians to look at, but also uh, other people, um, you know, offer me a place to stay. And I got to know a lot of people uh, thanks to those interactions. So I'm very uh, uh, deeply, deeply, deeply appreciative of that.
0: Yeah, there's uh, really some incredible living history in the book. I believe you spoke to um, Ralph Crowley was somebody from, you also went to White. Is that correct? Uh, Did you? Yes, I did. Yeah. So White had certain records, and Shepard Pratt had other rec- had the clinical records, and you reviewed both of them.
1: Exactly. So White Institute was uh, very much an institutional record. So you got the be- better, pretty good sense of you know who who was um, meeting with whom for what intellectual and clinical purposes. Uh, I didn't have an access to the patient records there. Um, because it really didn't function as a mental hospital or a clinic uh, at the time. Uh, it was more of an institutional uh, institution uh, when Syron was there. Uh, but uh, I did have an access to uh, clinical records that really showed, uh, uh, you know, word-for-word interactions between doctors and patients, including Saivan and his patients. Um so that was really a gold mine uh, for me as a historian, as a source of information. Um but also I think uh, it's important that I had an access to both of them, uh, because you know you have to have a both big and more close up pictures to write a good history.
0: And were you familiar with the uh, other bio the other work uh, that people have done on Sullivan, the the, the uh, Zwick Perry biography? I guess there was one by A. E. Chapman was another one I uh, and and But your work is quite different, actually.
1: Yeah, I think in all, uh, many different ways, I, I am different. And that was part of the uh, a challenging and but also exciting part of working on this project. So uh, looking at clinical records uh, so extensively um, was one of the, the biggest differences um, uh, that I had uh, from any previous work uh, written about Sullivan. But I think also um, issues of homosexuality. How are we to understand a famous uh, medical doctor's or any famous figure's uh, sexuality, which uh, was very much considered to be a private issue that shouldn't be, um, you know, uh, be even seen or uh, uh, being explored by anybody who are outsiders. Um, how do we actually write about it uh, in a way that makes sense to us, in a way that actually helps us better understand Sullivan and his world um, was another big uh, challenge, a new element in my work.
0: Did you know the premise as you, or did it come as you were doing the research that actually, and the title of the book is Private Practice, the sense that he did one thing in public and one thing and and worked and lived differently in private. Uh, was that something you discovered as you went along?
1: yeah exactly uh so um first, I was actually going to just look at uh how his um you know published work uh that talked about his interaction with patients maybe similar to and different from his clinical practices. And that was the purpose for me to look at clinical records at Shepard Pratt. And I think it was actually after I was, well, right around the time I became an ABD, so 2001 and 2002 even, when I I finally had a full access to all the clinical records from the 1920s and early part of the 1930s as well, And uh, one day, I just discovered uh, a bunch of clinical records that did include um, records of patients who were described to be suffering from uh, the, in quotation marks, obviously, uh, because that was medical perception at the time, suffering from their homosexual inclinations. Those are the terms that medical doctors of Shepherd Pratt used at that time. So they didn't use the word homosexuality, but given their words, patients' words, their description of their feelings and experiences, it was clear that this is going to be uh, a big issue that anybody who looks at the history of this nature would have to think about. So I was actually taken by surprise. I knew that Sullivan, you know, having this very if in a very limited way, suggests his uh, struggle with his uh, uh, sexuality and uh, Chapman's work that you mentioned earlier as well. So I knew that uh, you know, um, he, he was a sexual minority, um, even though, of course, people didn't use that term at that point. Um, he was a gay psychiatrist. Um, but I, I guess I didn't know exactly what kind of primary sources existed uh, when I started out this project only to realize very much later in my work that, yes, I have, to, I have to think about how to talk about this because the evidence is here. So, yeah, you're right. This is something that uh, showed up along the way as I uh, dug deeper into the uh, archive.
0: Uh, it's interesting because um, so much of, uh, of Sullivan, I, I think, uh, is, well, many people know some of the facts of his life, um, a lot of it is uh, there's certain idealization and kind of um, a myth, a, a mythical uh, sense that has come around him, um, that 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 kind of excludes the things that you were talking about. So it was very interesting to kind of see that there was really this other piece. Um, I, I was thinking uh, of the clinic, uh, the all male clinic, and and I had never really thought about this before about why he had kind of s- structured it that way, and also. How it closed, and and, and and there were, you know, there there are many instances like that of why he would choose to do something, and a lot of it's kind of mysterious.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think I also got uh, a sense of how some doctor-patient interactions, but also patient-to-patient interactions, might have had therapeutic values for them. I mean, this was a very different kind of time. Uh, in terms of American society's understanding and uh, um, approach to issues of sexual diversity. Not that things are ideal now, but uh, 1920s, this is the time when there were still ideas about you know, sexual minorities as sinners and uh, criminals, and it was being replaced by the idea that they are, as a matter of fact, mentally ill rather than uh, sinners in a religious sense. So um, they were sort of trying to... The idea itself of uh, talking about their same sex sexual relations and feelings uh, in uh, interacting with a psychiatrist was, in itself, very new and probably scary thing, a courageous thing, uh, to, thing to do. And this is an environment that, even though it's a, uh, it, you know, I'm not trying to idealize mental hospitals here because people did feel that they were being stigmatized just by the fact of being sent there. And yet, what they found out is that um, sometimes they found themselves to be surrounded by people who held similar feelings about their own sexuality, probably even had similar experiences of having sexual encounters uh, with a person of same sex. And a psychiatrist seems to know very much of the similar kinds of things as well. And I think it was a very special And uh, surprisingly, um, I'm struggling for a word here. Um, um, Accepting maybe uh, is the word I'm looking for, um, given the time for people who had those kinds of experiences. Um, So that was a pleasure uh, for me to kind of start to have the sense, even though you're right, I think Sullivan was very good at compartmentalizing his uh, ideas and relationship with people so, um, uh, for him, I think clinical setup at Shepherd Pratt was more or less a protected environment.
0: And, and uh, he, would, he would also kind of move on from one environment to another. Like, I guess it, it closed, uh, you know, um, it, it closed kind of quickly, or he, he was kind of moved someplace else. And then he came to New York as well, right? And, and worked in New York privately.
1: Right. And I think, and I hope that my book makes it clear that um, and that's when uh, his uh, interaction with uh, students um, he was, you know, training as a psychologist at that point uh, as well as his relationship to students clearly became highly ethically problematic um, because there was a lack of, um, you know, clearly stated informed consent uh, prior to um, having sexual interactions or relationship Um with some of his students and patients. So, um, but I think I, I like to really emphasize how as a historian, not as a clinician, but as a historian, I see it's important to know there are different kinds of things happen when sexual relationship uh, occurs, um, be it between uh, patient and patient or between, uh, doctors and patient. I don't want to be the person who, uh, Makes a quick judgment and move on because we feel superior. We have a better ethical standard now, more you know, uh, 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 considerate and um, thoughtful um, uh, patient rights-oriented um, conduct uh, code of conduct. Um, and then I think it's true. And yet, I mean, that's what people in the 1920s and 30s thought. They they didn't live their lives thinking that they are horrible people. They were they are not thinking that I'm going to abuse this or that. Uh, they were sort of um, practicing in their own time frame. So we don't want to say it was perfectly fine, which I do not say in my book. I'm not saying that it's it's okay for uh, doctors to have sexual relationship with patients without consent or uh, whatsoever. Um just because they, their time thing, time um, period was limited, um, different from ours, I'm not saying that that's okay. But I think it, it doesn't help us understand why they did what they did, why they failed in the way they failed. So that's that's where I really wanted to explore by kind of making a distinction between um, sort of experimental clinical environment that Sullivan created at Sheppard Pratt during the 1920s, and what I think to have become more problematic um, situation after he moved to New York City uh in his own uh, clinic uh, clinic so um uh, that's that's part of my effort to kind of think about history in a way that's uh, sensible to uh, what might look like a, a, a fine distinction to our modern perception
0: do you think uh it was totally a product of his time or that there was something else he could have done. Do you think there was that he had more awareness? He could have done more. Or was it just so embedded in, in the time that he practiced that he didn't, he didn't distinguish, uh, you know, he didn't do more for homosexuality be, uh, since he was a gay man that he could have done more.
1: Of course we can all do more. <laughs> <laughs> I speak about myself all the time. I could do much better. <laughs> and, uh, I think he could have in the universal sense, but I also like to point out how uh, when, for instance, uh, one of my chapters talks about how um, in 1928 and 1929, he attended this colloquium called Personality Colloquium, and that involved not only psychiatrists and psychologists, but also anthropologists and political scientists and so forth, people from the social sciences, including, you know, leaders from the famous Chicago School of Sociology, who were really the leading school in the field at the time. They are the founding forces of U.S. modern social sciences, Uh, some mothers as well, by the way.
0: (laughs) Ruth Benedict and uh, uh, um, Margaret Mead.
1: Yes, exactly. Even though, come to think of that, I don't know if Mother Mead or Ruth Bolton Benedict would prefer the term mother because they were you know, sexual minorities themselves. I really mm-hmm. don't know what kind of gender identity they might have had, even though I think they publicly um, pronounce themselves to be women. Uh, but th- that was a beside the point. Um, so, um, yeah, so in those plus personality colloquiums, Sullivan really tried to talk about homosexuality and Something that could be read as a better, his effort to encourage the better acceptance of sexual minorities in public. And that's a huge deal for the late 1920s. I think it's even if it happened now, it's somewhat courageous thing to do. So, what he was doing was to kind of talk about how we might see uh, homosexuality. It's so not a pathological view, but as some, somebody that is um, A, uh, feel that they are um, not well, not because of the fact that they are sexual minorities, but because of the fact that society looks down upon it. And B, isn't there any better quality that they might possess because of the fact that they are sexual minorities? he was really reaching out to that line of discussion. Um, and this is in the 1920s, right, when people are sort of breaking gender and sexuality boundaries in, in many other different ways, um, you know, we hear a lot about flappers and uh, you know, women sure. and men who were beginning... The jazz
0: age, and, yes,
1: Yeah, right. So I, I think he had a, a enough uh, of uh, a basis that he detected in public and social realms there that might help him to make those accepting arguments about uh, sexual minorities. Uh, so I think given that, um, he did quite a bit, um, and I admire him for that.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the book, uh, The, the um, Treatment of a Young Male Schizophrenic, which is um, a kind of a transcript of a supervisory case uh, of a young, of a young man. And I, whenever I read this and I, I use it for teaching and, and I go over it quite often, I think of the conflation between, uh, that seems to come across in that about, uh, homosexual urges and schizophrenia. Like if you read the case, it's almost quite clear that the person wouldn't be called schizophrenic nowadays, you know, yeah. um, and, and, and also that he maybe had some urges, but it wasn't the focus of it, but yet there was this kind of, um, uh, a lot of discussion about the the homosexual urges and schizophrenia together.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, that's in his published work, Sullivan's published work as well, that uh, he saw some correlation uh, between schizophrenic symptoms and uh, homosexual inclinations. Um, But I I also think it's important for us to note that um, it's not as though uh, all the patients that I looked at um, the clinical records of Shepard Pratt, who were diagnosed with schizophrenia, had homosexual experiences or feelings, or other way around. In other words, there are people who um, really seem to have uh, had severe symptoms uh, of schizophrenia um, in addition to their uh, trouble, the feeling about their sexual experiences and feelings. So I think it's it's true that those two things are uh, oftentimes bound together, but in other cases they are not necessarily, you know, um, overlapping concepts. Mm
0: -hmm. And and also, I guess there was some sense that um, that that to have a homosexual identity was was almost like a little less than uh, like or a step along the maturational. Uh, scale yeah. towards heterosexual development—that this was kind of a problematic concept.
1: Yeah, exactly, absolutely. So, um, uh, Sartrean was part of that—a school of thought, even though he was, like I said earlier, in connection with 1928 and 29 Colloquium, pushing for testing a, a line of theory that would counter such an argument of immaturity. I think that's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The Freudian, you know, theory had that idea. Harry stocks had that idea that, you know, you go through this phase of being a sexual minority and then, then you grow out of it one day and all will be very happy and you'll be happy as well. Um, uh, he he tried out that line of thinking with uh, one of his patients at Sheffield Pratt as a matter of fact, only to be refuted by the patient. Mm-hmm. You know, the patient kind of responded, yes yeah by saying that well but I mean what about you you know you you look like a grown up and then you seem to be a, a homosexual man as well
0: yes, that so, was very interesting in the book <laughs> and uh, how he challenged him back
1: yes exactly
0: yeah um and then he kind of used that that same line of thinking right in the, during the war right because he was involved in um in, in the select was it in selection of people for the draft or or in setting up the criteria for um for acceptance into the army in world war ii was this uh and, and he used some of this as well right
1: yeah yeah so i mean he was it was a big deal I and mean, he was the first uh, u.s military system to screening in and out of people based on their sexual um uh, orientations um so once you are found to have engaged in or um uh, even have an inclination to have same-sex uh, sexual desires, then you are out. And Sullivan was uh, uh, the chief architect of that screening criteria. So um, that was obviously late 1930s and 19, early 1940s. But that's when Sullivan was really a uh, nationally um, respected psychiatrist. Um, and that's that's the reason, the very reason why he was mobilized, uh, recruited for this national project of a great importance and consequences.
0: What led to his national fame? How did he go from being a doctor at Shepherd Pratt to kind of this practice to becoming kind of nationally known?
1: That's a really good question.
0: I just thought I of think- it now. I was curious. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, he had uh, encounter with, you know, right kind of people uh, Mm -hmm. in many ways. I mentioned earlier that he had an interaction with leading, you know, social scientists uh, even uh, early on in the 1920s. And um, yeah, so he sort of, um, there was a time period, not necessarily now, but uh, in the scholarship, when Sullivan was better known among, you know, social scientists uh, than more than he was among uh, psychiatrists. And, you know, because of his work on publications that came out of his collaboration with anthropologists and political scientists and so on. So um, I, I guess those kinds of connections probably, um, you know, push him uh, to that position, but also um, who had an experience of working very closely with people who were um, kind of not exactly severely ill, but um, maybe early on um, acute cases. Um, not a lot of people or psychiatrists of the uh, 30s had that kind of experience because the majority of psychiatrists were still uh, um, attendant at school, uh, state mental hospitals. Now, of course, you know, by the 1920s and 30s, there are a select number of elite elite hospitals, uh, such as Shepherd Pratt or Chestnut Lodge Hospital that you mentioned earlier, Chris, um, and Boston Psychopathic Hospitals or maybe, you know, the Kansas uh, Clinic, uh, Topica, um, uh, like the, the managers, Menninger's, uh, Brazil's Clinic, and so on. Those are uh, famous, but we shouldn't sort of forget how those hospitals are really select few places in the national scale, right? So lots of patients, as well as psychiatrists, were working at state hospitals, where, as, as you know, uh, mostly uh, the home for chronic long term patients um so that that means that uh, there are only a limited number of psychiatrists who had an experience of working with people who are um uh still in early phase of uh, mental confusion and illnesses, and that's exactly the kind of experience that was required for psychiatrists at the screening center right because you are not looking at obviously sick people in that kind of situation. You are actually kind of looking at mostly healthy people. And your uh, assignment uh, is to be able to decipher who is likely to fall ill or who looks like uh, he is or she is on the verge of becoming mentally ill. And I think that particular kind of experience that Sullivan had probably had uh, much to do with how he was uh, recruited.
0: Yeah, I I was uh, I had done an interview with the Gail Hornstein who had written the book on Frieda From Reichman, and uh-huh. a, a lot of that kind of overlaps this with the with the idea of that what a, what a great set of circumstances it was almost like a perfect set of circumstances that came together because um, you had um, these hospitals where people were wealthier and they and they they came there for longer stays and. Um, and also the good, in fact, being in Washington, the Washington area had something to do with a good government insurance. Often the people had good insurance policies and, and these, these long term treatments were covered and it wasn't quite the same people that you got in the chronic hospital. So, uh, I guess in some way he must've known that and kind of, uh, decided to work with that, with that group.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think he was being ambitious too. I, yes. I think he really believed in a social experiment or, um, application, social, broader application of medical theories and practices, uh, which I, I think was quite problematic. Um, but yeah, so I, I think it was an exciting opportunity for him, even though he, he was very much deeply troubled by some of the things that he observed, um, including things like, um, you know, people are uh, getting stigmatized even more by getting rejected. Right, selective, uh uh services, so I think he realized that he his original intention was to do this great experiment uh mostly to protect um, people who uh, whom he cared about, uh, including you know homosexual men uh, because he real, his his belief as a uh, clinical psychiatrist at the time was that um many people are psychologically and socially vulnerable, especially in a uh, single-sex environment, such as army or even schools, for that matter, uh, because they might experience same-sex sexual desires for the first time when they are not quite ready to sort of digest it and when the society is not accepting of it. And and then those are the reasons why a person might actually have a, a psychological breakdown, including things like... Schizophrenia, as you mentioned earlier. Um, so his intention was to protect uh, those what he believed to be vulnerable individuals uh, from the uh, psychological breakdown by letting them serve in the army. And as it turned out, it turned itself, the screening system itself turned itself into a discriminative um, device uh, as well. So I think, he was, I think he understood it and felt quite... Uh, disappointed with that.
0: Did you um, come across any information about his own personal break, like the the stories that he had a personal breakdown early on? Um, I don't know if that was, if there was, you know, there's kind of like a famous gap around there. I was wondering if you uh, saw anything in the records about that as well.
1: Yeah, so if I run into any records whatsoever, I would have written a lot about it. Uh, I didn't write that much about it because I couldn't find anything beyond speculation and fragments. And uh, those are different from historical evidence. And uh, if I cannot collaborate a uh, substantial number of evidence to speak to each other, to sort of reconstruct at least a skeleton of a uh, story, then that's, that's just a story. It's not a history. So um, I, I draw a line there. And um, I, I really didn't find anything to, to share with you. It's, it was... There was not something that um, that existed in terms of what historical records told me
0: uh, uh, one of his famous you know contributions concept is the uh, the detailed inquiry, and uh, the book made me think about um, how much of that came from uh, sociology and uh, i I was wondering if <laughs> if he really gave credit where credit was due for that you know made me think about that that he he kind of gets credit for this concept in, psych- <laughs> in, in psychology, but really, it's a, it's a sociological concept. Uh
1: huh. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you know, sociologists- even the participant
0: observer, the uh, the detailed inquiry yeah. seems to come from uh, from the, those sociological circles.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And the, the life history method that um, I talk a lot about in my in my book. I mean, it is you know what sociologists are really interested in doing. um... You know, and that was a very important kind of method because people are beginning to think that, you know, ordinary people probably matter much more than <laughs> what we thought. Uh, prior to that, only the elite individual political leaders mattered or famous people mattered. Now they are thinking about immigrants and women and the poor and, you know, um, the residents of big cities. Um, so therefore sociologists had to sort of develop those new methodological devices which was very exciting um, uh, for them. But I think also they benefited from Sullivan's, uh input into those methodologies as well. And, and I think, you know, there are other psychologists and psychiatrists uh, who were part of this collaboration, and Saliban was just part of it. But I think it was very much uh, interactive and uh, interdisciplinary processes that, uh, you know, shaped what we know as interpersonal theory or life history, or, uh, you know, we historians uh, tend to refer to it as oral history when we interview people. Um, that's definitely based on those traditions, uh, scholarly and intellectual and political traditions uh, that those people really helped create. Um, yeah, so I think, it, yeah, everybody should get a credit.
0: <laughs> okay. So, so it, was, it was mutually influenced. People went, it, it went both ways.
1: Right. Yeah, but come to think of it, uh, what you said made me think of how, you know, even though he was really interested in uh, getting stories out of people, wanting to understand this person, who is this person, what kind of person is he, was really a scary question that Salivan apparently asked many of his students that really was intimidating to to many of them. Um, I mean, some of his students, you know, mentioned that uh, in their memoirs uh, or notes and so forth. But I think, you know, it's it's kind of revealing that despite the fact that that's what he was uh, pursuing throughout his work, uh, he really left only fragmentary, uh, you know, stories uh, about himself. Um, he didn't write diaries, and he didn't write tons of letters. I mean, he wrote some letters, but it's not a lot. Um which really made it difficult for anybody to try to sort of look into some of the basic facts about his life. So I mean, it's a great contradiction, right?
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, he, that's the thing. It's like you. Re, it, it's really clear how many contradictions uh, he had. In, in other words, one of the you know well-known ones was his how he would treat his patients, which was usually very warmly, and then how he would treat the supervisees, where he was kind of a very difficult guy. He, he, so he like he said, compartmentalized and split. In, in so many ways.
1: Right, exactly. And uh, some of his, uh, you know, treatment of his patients were pretty um, stern as well, um, oftentimes with female stu- uh, patients, but uh, including some male patients as well. So um, it's not as though we can just sort of feel good about how he was uh, ah. really capable of understanding any patient and being able to, warm and sympathetic to and compassionate to them, and I don't think that that was
0: true at all. He didn't seem to work very often with, with female patients.
1: Yeah, although that became more extreme, I think, toward the end of his tenure at Shepard Pratt. Um, I think he did see some female patient earlier in his work when he was uh, not a clinical director and they uh, do not therefore have a lot of opportunities to be choosy about which patients to to work with. And uh, I I think, uh, you know, the way Shepard Pratt worked out, uh, the sort of doctor-patient relationship was, uh, yeah, to assign one main doctor, chief doctor to a patient. But then most of times patients would be seen and even interviewed by a team of doctors, right? So um, Saevan may not have been a chief physician of a female patient, and yet, of course, he did have a lot of female patients that he um, you know, looked at and worked with um, because he was one of the physicians on the team to, to care for this female patient. So, yes, he, he did have quite a few interactions with female patients, and that continued on after he moved to New York City as well in the 1930s.
0: And that was another key turning point in his life when he, he gave up his practice uh, after New York. Was that correct? He kind of moved more into kind of a, a governmental and global role.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. He was in administration and he was really not seeing patients anymore, um, which is really unfortunate for me because what really drove me, uh, drove my curiosity from the beginning was how he interacted with his patients. And, um how he made sense of it, um, how it might have shaped even his own interpersonal relationship with his people. Um, um, So I guess, you know, if he had seen a patient on left clinical records from the 1940s, that would have opened up an entirely different uh, perspective um, among us who are left behind. But um, yes, you're right, he sort of really um, moved away from clinical practices Um, So it's an irony, especially if you think about it uh, in combination with how he was taking up this big role at Selective Services uh, in his screening processes. And uh, he really became a famous, important person. And um, that really changed the way um, he's perceived by people, but also, I think, changed the way that he interacted with his collaborators. Um, So um, that was another turning point. Really
0: well. I, I seem to have gotten the sense that he missed um, working with more severe people that after the private practice of seeing um, seeing higher uh, people who are out in the world that that it almost seemed like it from what what I took away from the book was almost seemed like it wasn't gratifying like the earlier work was
1: yeah, I think you're right, but I think he also didn 't decide to go back to clinical practices either um, so um I don't really exactly know why that was the case. I think he was consumed by his passion, consumed by his importance and genuinely significant tasks, such as, you know, creating the, the World Federation of uh, Health and uh, Federation of Mental Health, and then trying to come up with, uh, you know, in collaboration with uh, psychiatrists and social scientists worldwide. Uh, some kind of standard to prevent from the war from happening. And it, it, <laughs> it, it is an impossible task for anyone to really feel great about, but I think he felt passionate about it, and he felt that he could do something, he could make some important contribution to it, and that belief really uh, kept him away from any possibility of going back to seeing patients.
0: Yeah, well, it seemed like he was, like, in the right place at the right time, and he would also put himself in the right place. Like, after the war, uh, there seemed to be a very, uh, like, a lot of optimism and ambition about kind of using institutions to change mental health and to kind of do these things. And, and he was right there, and kind of, he, he both had a passion for it, but also had the opportunity to do something like that. It, it, I guess it turned out it, you know, later on wasn't necessarily successful, but that was the movement at the time, I, it, it seems. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and that was uh, Argent, uh uh, feeling the urgency that the um, you know that was uh very taking shape after world war two um so um it was supposed to be a good war uh, from the allied force Allied powers perspective, but it was a good war because something horrible uh, plenty of horrible things happened in the war so what to do with it uh, in response was uh, really an urgent issue for um people who felt that they have something to uh, contribute to the solution. Um, but I also think that was the era when uh, uh, Western centrism and uh, centric ideas, the idea that Western society is the one that has a solution to world programs, as well as American exceptionalism, a belief that America has a unique responsibility and role to play in shaping the world dynamism, um, were very prevalent, and then I think eventually that was the limitation that that made most of the I, I shouldn't say most of, but uh, a significant component of the, the project that Sullivan engaged himself in um, didn't materialize or fail.
0: Did was James Insko alive at, when when you were writing the book, or he was? And but you had access to some of the papers, and uh, James Insko was his was his uh, life partner. I guess would be maybe the term.
1: Yes, right. So, yes, he was, he was already, um, he had passed away, unfortunately. Um, I'd be curious to know if he would have agreed to see me if <laughs> he was still alive. Um, but you're right, I, I did have a chance to um, look at um, some of his uh, writings, um, mostly letters that he wrote to Heron Slick Perry, and I was allowed to, uh, look at those, uh, documents, uh, thanks to the Stuart Perry, uh, the widowed husband of, uh, Heron Swick Perry. So I, I forever hold him for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really great that he was, uh, willing to share those, um, very sensitive and personal documents with me. I, I don't, I, I know it doesn't happen with everybody. So I'm very much grateful for that, uh, for Stuart. Yes, yeah, so he he has a very neat handwriting. <laughs> so even though uh, the amount of document was uh, pretty large, um, I was able to go through it uh, very reasonably well. And, um, yeah, he was, he was a good writer, very revealing about um, his relationship, his thoughts about his partner, Harris-Duck but also... Um, not the one to use the most um, straightforward language for that. So it was not evasive or not secretive or anything, but I think it was very much open to interpretations. Um, It was challenging, but I I really like to read his letters a lot.
0: I mean, as we've been talking, the book book was pretty um, controversial and kind of overturns or exposes kind of a lot of stuff. Uh, What was the uh, reaction to the book and to the... Uh, from maybe the psychoanalytic community or from the interpersonal community, Uh, what kind of response did you get?
1: It varies so much. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just amazing for me to um, realize that people have strong reactions to it. Um, And I shouldn't be surprised. I mean, in a sense, I'm not surprised. Um, But I still was (laughs) when I actually started (laughs) to get so many many different responses. So some people thought that... um, well, not necessarily a book per se, but some people I got in touch with with an intention of finding something out about people's sexuality in the process of writing a book was really upset. They were really upset because they felt that, you know, this person is a wonderful person and uh, this person's sexuality should remain a private matter. Um, so some of the things that uh, shaped Henry theories time, for instance, you know, 1970s and 80s, uh, where sexuality was not supposed to be publicly talked about, even though there are tons of people who were talking about it. But this particular kind of sexuality, uh, particular uh, associate with famous, um, you know, people that left lots of cherished memory to uh, others, it was still a taboo. So there was a little bit of that. There are other people who felt that... Um, I didn't do enough. So um, some people thought that uh, my sort of uh, description of um, the disparity between public and private and um, you know, social scientists and psychiatrists' approach to homosexuality was too harsh on them because they did their best given their time. It was a homophobic society at the time. Uh, I shouldn't be, we shouldn't be criticizing any homosexual individuals who try to do their best in their own circumstances. So the fact that I was sort of even talking about the public-private gap was was not pleasing to those people, and and, and I guess uh, anything in between, right? So um, that was that was kind of surprising. And there are other people, fortunately for me, who are just really happy with that and. They, they kind of got my project uh, in terms of how I, I wanted to show as many possible um, aspects as possible so that we can, we can come up with at least some reasonable well-grounded interpretation of the past. Um, um, so by, by not just uh, talking about them, but but he, being able to sort of use all those observations to, um, to get to know him, um, his people and his time better, um, I, I think many people got that that was where I was going with that. So that was probably um, most pleasurable for me, but you're right. I think there are quite a few variations in terms of how people responded to it.
0: Uh, what do you think the effect on uh, Sullivan Sullivan's legacy? What do you think it's been? What do you think? How do you think we should consider Sullivan going forward from here?
1: I, I think he uh, he certainly um, is somebody who offered uh, many um, wonderful, inspiring theories and ideas, and his clinical practices. I wish I could them, right, um, just by looking at clinical records, word-for-word exchanges between him and his patients, um, I think he was a very, very talented, uh, unique uh, clinician. Um, so we, we can appreciate him for that, uh, and also we can appreciate for how he struggled was um, um, what he saw to be his um, problem, his weakness, something that he grappled with, which is his sexuality, and did his best to sort of um, do something with it. I think, you know, you know I, I tend to think uh, or respect individuals uh, when they, uh, their life is sort of underpinned by uh, some current of pain. Uh, and then they still sort of, you know, live with that. But I, I think, I mean, that kind of applies to most of us. Uh, but, but then I really admire individuals even more when I see those people uh, being really keenly aware of that pain, where it comes from, and how they are living with that, and then try to do something with it. Um, and I think Taliban did just that. Right. Um, so be it with his patients in a relatively protected uh, clinical environment, uh, but in also, um, you know, more open public uh, spaces such as academic conferences. And even though its consequence was highly problematic, the screening system was also something that he tried to implement with good intentions, so to speak, um, so I think we we, we do I, I would want him to be understood in that light as well. Um which is neither romanticizing or um you know uh hypercritical. Um I, I think it's um something else that <laughs> I am trying to get at here.
0: I think it just provides a fuller picture for all of us who um who admire Sullivan's work and, and uh still use the theoretical concepts and and uh, it just gives another perspective and I think I think it's just a it was just a great book I really enjoyed reading it and I, I think it's a, it's a great contribution actually you. do you want to speak for a moment about what you're doing now you're no longer <laughs> you're not writing about psychoanalysis but if you'd like to speak about your latest uh, um, project please do
1: yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm happy to. Just make sure that it doesn't get too long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think historians just love to talk about their own project, yeah. especially the ones that, that that's torturing them right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, I am writing uh, a book um, about uh, American survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they are little known Asian Americans who happen to be there in Japan as of 1941. Um, so their history compared to the history of Japanese survivors of uh, the A-bombing in 1945 or even Korean survivors of the same instance is uh, very little known. Um, so um, I have conducted uh, about 90 oral history interviews with those Asian-American survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and uh, I am trying to write something about it. Um so um their history is very complicated and I, I think their uh description um the way I describe the American survivors um would be very similar to the way I describe Sullivan actually. <laughs> um you know, somebody who has a lives with a pain but also tries to do something uh about it with it. Um and clearly they have um uh, had a long history of uh, struggle um, to have their radiation illnesses recognized um, both by Japanese and American governments, and in many cases by Korean governments as well, because they include not only Japanese Americans, but also Korean American survivors. So three countries, nation states, are involved in this. Um, so it's a, a transnational history um, um, that sort of try to understand uh, survivor's memory and identity, um, and much of it is actually, you know, how they kind of grapple with the notion of illness. So when um, I mentioned, um, you know, radiation illness earlier, because obviously that's one main um, problem that survivors of uh, nuclear weapons um, suffer from. Um, but I, I guess we tend to think of it in the... Uh, medical and statistical sense, but, uh, I'm more interested in radiation illness in a social and psychological sense. So Mm -hmm. in in some ways, you know, uh, it's not all that different from my first book, um, uh, because, um, of that kind of connection, but that's what I'm working on now.
0: Are you working on it now and anticipate the maybe next year?
1: Uh I wouldn't be that optimistic. I'm working on uh my first draft right now, so it will be done by the end of this summer, crossing my fingers. But uh the publication will be probably two years out. That's that's my best guess. Um but uh, my some of my articles are uh coming out, so um I'm very excited and you know I want to I want to do a right thing for this project obviously. Uh some of the people I interviewed are passing away um you know youngest people i talked to were in in in, in their late 60s because obviously they're old um so i i do feel an um a sense of urgency that i uh we have to uh, preserve their voices before they are all gone and uh i'm actually um concurrently as my book writing, working on this project to preserve the oral history interviews that are digitally recorded. Um, and I'm trying to sort of partner with museums and archives to make sure that we don't lose those people's voices. So that's, yeah.
0: That's, that's, that sounds wonderful. I'll be looking forward to it. So you. I think we'll be finishing now. So I just want to say um, thank you so much for this interview. Um, we've been speaking to Naoko Wake the author of Private Practices Harry Stock Sullivan The Science of Homosexuality and American Liberalism um, thank you so much for being with us today
1: yeah Good. thank you very much I uh, really enjoyed talking with you and great questions I really appreciate it thank great. you
0: great take care